meet with his people, to come and take up residence in our hearts and draw us to a personal relationship with God. We see where God sent his apostles to the nations to go and declare the good news of Christ. And we see God has sent us, his church, to the nations and our neighbors with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We saw in Acts chapter 1 that after Jesus ascended into heaven, the disciples met together in the upper room and they were continually united in prayer. In the 10 days in between Jesus' ascension and the coming of the Spirit, the disciples go through the process of identifying the man who would replace Judas Iscariot as an apostle. Well, God providentially taps Matthias on the shoulder and he takes Judas' spot. But let's not forget what Jesus said would happen. Back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we get to Acts chapter 2, verse 1, and we see that Jesus is proven exactly right. In Acts chapter 2, verse 1, the scripture says this, When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven, When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. They were astounded and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judea, in Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues." This morning, I want you to see in the text how the Holy Spirit worked in Acts chapter 2 and what this means for us. I want you to see the first thing here in the text. I want you to see the timing of the Spirit. The timing of the Spirit. Verse 1 tells us, on the timing of the Spirit coming upon the disciples, verse 1, the day of Pentecost. Okay, what is Pentecost? The word Pentecost means 50. It has been 50 days since the Feast of First Fruits. Okay, what does that mean? Well, there are seven major Jewish feasts that God's people were commanded to keep in the Old Testament. I put in your notes uh, four of them, just to highlight these four. These Jewish feasts that were leading up to Pentecost, these first three were the first three Jewish feasts that led up to Pentecost. Now, all Jewish males were commanded, if they were physically able, to go to Jerusalem, according to Leviticus 23, and attend these feasts. All right, well, what's the first feast? The first one is Passover. It's Passover. Before the people of Israel left Egypt, God commanded them to eat the Passover meal. They were to, remember back in Egypt, they were commanded to put the blood of a lamb on the doorposts of their homes. So that that night when the angel of the Lord was covering over the land of Egypt, 
in any home that did not have the blood of the lamb put upon the doorpost, the firstborn would die. But we see that those who had the blood of the lamb marked upon their homes, the angel of the Lord would pass over their homes and they would be saved. Well, this annual feast was a celebration to remember how God delivered his people from death in Egypt. Well, Passover was actually pointing forward to Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world through his shed blood on the cross. The second feast that we see in Scripture is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was celebrated the day after Passover. When God delivered Israel out of Egypt, he brought them out so quickly that they did not have time to bake bread with leaven in it for their road trip. Now, leaven is an ingredient that you put in bread that makes it rise. And so the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a remembrance of how quickly the Jews got out of Egypt. Well, over time, leaven became symbolic not only of Israel's old life in Egypt under Pharaoh, but it became symbolic of sin and worldliness. In Matthew 16, Jesus warns his disciples, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. You see, the Feast of Unleavened Bread symbolized putting off this old life. Well, Jesus is the unleavened bread who lived a sinless life that you and I couldn't live. That Jesus was the perfect sacrifice for our sins. During Passion Week, Jesus' body was in the grave during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And later on, the disciples probably recalled Jesus saying in John 12, 24, Truly I tell you, Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. Well, Jesus was talking about himself. He is the grain of wheat that falls to the ground and dies. He was planted for three days. And then he burst forth from the grave bearing much fruit. Which leads us to the third feast, which is the feast of first Fruits. The Feast of First Fruits took place on the first Sabbath after Passover. This feast marked a day of thanksgiving to God for the first fruits of the harvest. It was a day to thank the Lord for the grain harvested so far in the spring. At this feast, the Israelites offered their very first crops that they had grown. Now, there was a huge step of faith for them to do this because they had to trust that God would provide to bring more of a harvest. Well, as believers today, we, when we gather together as followers of Jesus, we offer our offerings, we give our resources, our money as a first fruits as a step of faith saying, God, I believe that you're going to provide for my needs. I'm going to give you my first. I'm going to give you my best. And I trust that you will provide for the rest. Well, you see, the Feast of First Fruits pointed to Jesus, who was the first to come forth from the earth, never to die again. Paul referenced this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. He says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
You see, Jesus is the first fruits from the dead of an even greater harvest that is to come. For there is coming a day when all of the redeemed throughout the ages will be physically, bodily raised from the grave. You see, you have been guaranteed a physical resurrection for Jesus is the first of an entire harvest to come. You see, there's coming a day in which you and I will be planted in the ground. And yet God in his infinite power is going to raise us up. Jesus is the first fruits. He's the first one to rise from the dead. But there's a harvest that's coming. There's a whole host of the redeemed throughout the ages. People from every tribe and tongue and people and nation that are going to rise. Death doesn't have the last word for you, beloved. We're not scared of death because Jesus defeated death for us through his death and resurrection. He is the first fruits of what is to come. And so he's our first one to go up, but guess what? We will follow him as well. You are trusting in a risen Savior. It has everything to do with your life. It has everything to to do with your eternity. And that you and I are not those who shrink back. We're not those who are fearful of what is to come because we know what the future holds. The next 80 years may be really hard, but the next 80 million look incredible. So we got a feast of first fruits. I got to stop there. I got a whole lot more to go. But number four, okay, these are the first three feasts. Leading up to number four, it's called the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. Now, the name Weeks, it gets its name from the fact that it starts seven full weeks or 50 days to be exact after the Feast of First Fruits. Now, this is peculiar for us, y'all, because I think the vast majority of us are not Jewish. This is new for us, okay? So if you're like, I don't quite get it, that's okay. We're going to learn together, and guess what? We have all eternity to discover the riches of what God has revealed in His Word. But this Feast of of Weeks, it takes place 50 days after the previous feast. It's Pentecost, and as we said earlier, it means 50. It's at this feast that the Jews were commanded to make offerings to the Lord. It would include, include grain, and it would include animals. Well, we see here in the text, the Father sent the Spirit on Pentecost upon the apostles. And Lord willing, what we're going to see next week is Simon Peter stands up, preaches the gospel, and the church is born. But let's not miss the bigger picture of what's happening here. These festivals, these feasts, God instituted them back in the Old Testament under Moses, 1,400 years before Jesus was born. And yet each one of these feasts were pointing forward to the Messiah. You see, Old Testament feasts were foreshadowing the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son at the perfect time. He fulfilled all that God had promised, and he did so on God's perfect calendar. God's timing is always Perfect. You see, each year after year after year, these feasts would be taken by these Jews and they would do these feasts many times ritualistically. There would be those who would just go through the motions and not realize that it's pointing forward not to something, but to someone. 
that Jesus is the fulfillment of these feasts of the Old Testament from Leviticus 23 and elsewhere. That he is the one who would arrive. And we see each of these feasts landing on the perfect day upon Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and now Pentecost. Do you see the bigger picture? Y'all, the whole thing is rigged. And at the same time, you do not need to worry if God's timing feels off. You are not those who wring our hands with anxiety saying, has God forgotten what he's doing? You do not need to worry if God's timing is not perfect. He's got it. You trust him. You trust his perfect plan. You wait on the Lord. He will do what he says he will do every single time. So as we look at the text, we see God's perfect timing of the Spirit. But I want you to see, secondly, the power of the Spirit. The power of the, of the Spirit. Look at verse 2. It says, suddenly, I, I love that word, y'all. When it shows up in Scripture, it means something exciting is about to happen. Suddenly, verse 2, a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Okay, so we have this fire that's coming from the Lord. It points back to Moses at the burning bush when God speaks to his man who's going to lead his people through fire. It points back to the pillar of fire which would lead God's people through the desert. It points to the engulfing fire of God that would fall at Mount Carmel with Elijah. It would point to Elijah being carried off on a, on a chariot of fire. The spirit who descended upon Jesus at his baptism like a dove is now descending upon these apostles. And I love this. We even have here a picture of how the spirit is working not only corporately, but personally. We see where the spirit is coming upon all of the disciples who are gathered there and each one of them individually. But don't miss the imagery here. These tongues of fire that are coming and resting upon them, it's pointing to the witnesses that they were going to be. They were going to be men and women who were about to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ with passion. They were about to declare the most important news the world has ever heard. These tongues of fire are coming upon them so that they might boldly proclaim, herald, testify who God is and what he has done in the gospel. Reminds me of the prophet Jeremiah who said in Jeremiah 20, if I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones and I am weary with holding it in and I cannot. These tongues of fire are falling upon God's people because they have a word to tell. They have good news to proclaim. It is coming upon them so that they might proclaim the excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Y'all, we have a gospel to proclaim. The same spirit that is falling upon the apostles in Acts 2 lives inside of you. 
For all who have turned from your sin and trusted in Christ by faith, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies. He's the same spirit that empowers you to proclaim the gospel. And he is the one here who is falling upon these believers and he is empowering them to preach. You see, the Holy Spirit is powerful. And when he moves, you can see it. There is evidence in people's lives. Did you notice how the Spirit came upon them? Verse 2, like the sound of a violent rushing wind. Okay, the Spirit moved in power, just like in Ezekiel 37, as He blows on the valley of dry bones that spring to life. The Spirit moves like the wind. You cannot see the wind, but you can see evidence of the wind. So it is with the Spirit. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 8, in which he said, the wind blows where it pleases and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. You see, where the Spirit works, there is undeniable, unmistakable evidence. You can see on the outside the Spirit's work on the inside. It's kind of like if someone says they know Jesus, but they don't live for Jesus, the Bible says they're a liar. Because you can see evidence of the work of the Spirit on the outside of His work on the inside. Question, is there evidence of the Spirit's work in your life? Can other people see the work of the Spirit on the outside of who you are? Well, Kenneth, how can I know? Let me ask you this. Do you have a growing love for Jesus? Are you falling more and more in love with the Savior? Are you growing in your hunger for God's word? Are you hungry for his word where you spend hours pouring over his word, wanting not only to get in the book, but have the book get into you? Do you have a desire to share the gospel? Do you meet people saying, I wonder if they know Jesus? And you're just burdened to tell them. Is the way that you speak being changed? Or is your lifestyle, the patterns of the way that you live, look more and more like Christ? You see, there is evidence on the outside, Jesus says, of the Spirit's work that you can see Him working on the inside. And there's some of you, I, get, I have the privilege of knowing your story, and I love hearing how Jesus is at work in your life and the work of the Spirit. And some of you have been so changed by the Spirit. You go back to work, you go back to school, and people are like, man, something's different about you. What's changed? Well, the answer is Jesus. He's changed your heart. He's changed your life. What we see happening here in Acts 2 is the Spirit coming upon God's people, and there is outward evidence There's proof through the proclamation of the gospel as they are declaring to those around them who God is and what he has done. So what is he doing? Well, we see thirdly, the purpose of the Spirit. The Spirit's purpose is to glorify Christ. His job is to point to Jesus. In John 16, Jesus said, he will glorify me. That's the Spirit's job. He's continually pointing to Jesus. So that's what we see happening here. We see how the Spirit, verse 5, He gathers every nation under heaven. 
They're gathered in Jerusalem for Pentecost. The nations have come to Jerusalem and the spirit moves in power and the people begin to speak the gospel. Verse six, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. You see, what we see happening in Acts 2 is a reversal of the Tower of Babel. Instead of languages being confused and causing people to scatter, now the languages are being understood and causing people to gather. They came together, verse 6, because they heard someone speaking their heart language. See, what we see happening here is the heart of God in which he wants to see all people all over the world come to the knowledge of his son. And he does so through speaking the native heart language of the people. And who does God use to do this? I love this. Uneducated, backwoods fishermen. Verse 7, Galileans. These Galileans, these men that you and I have come to know through our study of the Gospels, they're not sophisticated. They don't have degrees hanging up on their walls. They're not seminary educated. These are not linguistic geniuses who've been trained in foreign languages. You see, God loves to use the ordinary to do the extraordinary. Don't you dare think for a second that you're disqualified from being used by God because you're not smart or not good looking, or don't have the right kind of money. God is not looking in the extraordinary. He loves to use the ordinary, like a 14-year-old girl to become the mother of Jesus. He loves to find those who are poor and weak and says, that's a vessel I can use. He looks for the weakest of the weak and says, that is someone I can glorify my name through. You see, it's those who walk around with pride and arrogance. You have your reward. The Lord is looking for the humble. He's looking for the available. He's looking for those who will say, God, here am I, send me. I'm not take my agenda off the table. I'm not going to boast in my power or in my resume or in my influence or affluence. Lord, I need you. And here we see that happening where God takes these normal everyday Joes and he uses them to change the world, to start a revolution. But 2,000 years ago, here you and I are standing on their shoulders. God loves to use the ordinary to do the extraordinary. Now, as the spirit is moving, this is not charismatic chaos here, y'all. The Spirit was, was not empowering the people to be speaking gibberish. This, these are languages that they're speaking that are the actual heart languages of the people that were there for the feast. Okay, so what are the languages being spoken? Look at verse 9. We see Parthians, Medes, and Elamites. That's modern-day Iran. We see Mesopotamia. That's modern-day Iraq. We see Judea, that's the region that spans throughout most of modern-day Israel and Syria. We see Cappadocia, Pontus, Phrygia, and Pamphylia. These are districts of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. We see Egypt, Libya, and Cyrene, which is North Africa. We see Rome, which is modern-day Italy. We see Cretans, which is a Greek island in the Mediterranean Sea. So if we were to summarize all of this, we see Asia, Africa, and Europe all gathered in Jerusalem. 
different skin colors, different heart languages, all gathering together and they're hearing the gospel in their heart language. Like the ambassadors at the United Nations listening with headphones to interpreters who are translating speeches into their heart language. These Jews from Europe and Asia and North Africa, they're hearing the gospel in their heart language. Except they don't have headphones and they don't need interpreters because the spirit is overriding all of that. You see, God speaks all languages of the world. And here we see these Jews in Israel who are given an opportunity to hear the gospel in a language that didn't require them to get a translator, an interpreter. They're just speaking in the power of the Spirit, enabling them to speak the native language of those who are walking by. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to preach at a Kenyan church. And I went to this church in, 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 uh, just outside of Nairobi in a, a town called Riru. Uh, it was a beautiful community of great people. It's at Riru Bible Baptist Church. And the whole service is in Swahili, which I know zero Swahili. And I had an interpreter who was there next to me. And he's, I mean, I'm like, okay, what are they saying? And he's telling me in English what they're saying. And the time came for me to get up and preach. And as someone who not only has to speak with their hands moving, I like to speak with rhythm and cadence and you know that you, you hear me all the time like I, I have a hard time talking slow especially when I'm excited about Jesus right and so I have to preach this sermon in one sentence fragments and so I would give a sentence and I would wait and he would translate and begin speaking into Swahili and then he would look at me and I would go on to my next sentence and then he would go on and translate. And we'd go back and forth, back and forth. And I just got to the point where I was like, what am I even saying? Like, I, I, I couldn't get like, my rhythm going. I couldn't get. And, and as I was talking to him, I, I would make this statement. And, and in the perfect Kenyan accent, he would look at me and go, what? <laughs> I'm like, bro, I don't even know what I'm saying right now. Right? Have you ever been in an international context, different country? And all of a sudden, you hear someone speaking in English. It's almost like your heart flutters for a moment. You turn. You're like, oh my goodness, they're speaking my language. That's what's happening here in Acts 2. They're in a land that's not their home. They're in town for the feast. And all of a sudden, they hear their heart language. Someone's speaking my language, my tongue. And they begin to gather. And as they gather, what are they hearing? They're hearing the gospel. They're hearing verse 11, the extraordinary deeds of God. And as you and I sit here today, here's the challenge I want to place before you. It's your impact point, and it's this. Declare the magnificent acts of God to your neighbors. God has been kind to put you in a community in which you are able to speak the gospel to those who can understand you. And we have a, the best news of all, the gospel. The good news that those who are sinful and broken, which all of us are, can be rescued and saved forever by Jesus and what he has done for us through his death on the cross. And the fact that he was buried and rose again on the third day, defeating death, so too will all who trust in him. We have a gospel to proclaim.
this month, throughout the month of February, in our life groups, we've been learning how to share our testimonies and how to share the gospel. You are equipped now to go to your neighbors and just like Anderson, to the nations to proclaim the gospel, to point people to Jesus. Y'all, we've got a story to tell. And I'm not sure about you, but I remember what it was like to be lost. I remember what it was like to not know Jesus and be groping in the dark, looking for something to satisfy my heart and always coming up empty until Jesus found me. And the Lord has people he desires to rescue. And he gets to use you and I to do it. How do we join him? We declare with the language he's given to us the good news of the gospel. Let's go and do it.